0: How much can individual consumer choices really change the carbon economy? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. The small choices we make every day can have a big collective impact on climate. But experts say individual actions can only get us about 30 or 40 percent of the way to safety. The rest falls on governments and companies.
1: Is every company ready to make their individual brand heard on particular policy measures? No, they're not.
0: Miranda Ballantyne is CEO of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, a coalition of companies across the U.S. When a major corporation chooses to operate on clean energy, it sends a strong signal about what kind of economic actor that business wants to be. The same is true for individual identity.
2: If I eat local, can I wear local? If I eat organic, am I wearing organic?
0: Rebecca Burgess is founder and director of Fibershed, a nonprofit that helps develop regional and regenerative fiber systems for clothing producers. We'll hear from her, Miranda, and others later in the show. Buying an organic or locally sourced shirt has an impact that is puny compared to pumping cleaner energy into a large company's data center but Tatiana Schlossberg says it's an important part of being the kind of person who acts in more collective and impactful ways. She's a former New York Times reporter and author of Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. We began our discussion about the climate impacts of everyday choices by walking through a typical morning at her house.
3: So I wake up and I look at my phone, probably. So that's the first thing. Um, and you know, our phones and our all of our devices have um, you know are produced using lots of metals and rare earth materials. So there's a um, and you know then are travel many many thousands of miles before they reach us. Um, so there's that carbon impact. And then using the internet itself uses electricity. So um, you know within the first few seconds I've made a dent. Um, and then I have my breakfast. I do love yogurt, so that has a big carbon (laughs) footprint in terms of, um, you know, livestock production um, is 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. I have some tea with milk, so already I'm not doing great.
0: Fifteen or fifty, depending on who, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Debatable number there, that's a whole debate. Yeah. yeah.
3: Um, Then I'll get dressed, so, you know, depending on what I'm wearing. If it's a pair of jeans, it's a lot of water. If it's, if I'm going to go exercise, it's synthetic fibers made from oil. And then, well, I live in New York, so I'll usually walk somewhere. But let's say I got into a, an Uber, <laughs> then I would be adding miles to the road and, um, you know, burning gasoline to get wherever I'm going. So within like the first hour, you can really kind of go around the world and back.
0: You write pretty early on that we focus on the little things in the hope that they matter. So we can feel like we at least did something when the apocalypse comes. <laughs> In the aggregate, these little things can matter. So tell us how, uh, we're, are we really making a difference? Or are we just addressing our conscience when we make these little changes?
3: Well, I think all these things are connected, and you know, I I stress in the book, um, you know, in the beginning and throughout that this problem is too big to be solved by individual behavioral changes because. It's hard to get 7 billion people to do anything without some kind of, um, you know, government regulation or international agreement or corporate action. That being said, you know, I think it's important for me and for people who care about this issue to try to live in line with our values because, you know, I want to be the kind of person who, if I learn more information about the harmful things that I'm doing, that I, that I act on them, not because I think that that's enough to solve the problem, but because, you know, maybe these things do add up and maybe they matter, but also kind of the consciousness around it will remind me hopefully to, um, you know, act in the more um, collective and impactful ways that I can, like voting or, you know, if I put pressure on a company to, to do better and, and to talk about climate change as well.
0: So you do it to be the kind of person that you feel you should be, not because of its impact in the, in the big picture.
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, there are, there are things that have that um you know contribute more than another thing, you know, like eating red meat or taking an airplane flight. I mean, those things Mm -hmm. contribute significantly. But I think me taking eating one fewer burger a week doesn't do that much because the system is so big and the incentives are so off that really to to fix that and to, you know, reduce the emissions associated with beef production and to um, you know, prevent things like rural drinking water pollution or a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico the system needs to be changed as well. And I don't know that that happens just from, you know, people who care about this eating a little less red meat.
0: I think that's, you know, what I try to work on is that bridging that, the personal and the systemic. Yeah. It's so hard because yeah. people are part of systems and yet we don't know how to change systems. Right. Systems thinking is for, you know, PhD brainiacs who's like way beyond, you know, uh, my ability. So how do you bridge, you know, and you write that the size of the problem and the narrative of personal responsibility is destructive. Yeah. Unpack that.
3: Well, I think, um, you know, the, the narrative around personal responsibility, the idea that if, you know, we had all just brought our own reusable grocery bags to the store 20 years ago, we wouldn't be in this situation makes us, I think, makes me anyway feel kind of guilty and turn inward and turn away from the problem and to really look at myself as opposed to, you know, what are the systems, what are the incentives um, that exist to make what, like, how how does the system work in a way that encourages more consumption and more waste and more emissions um, that is sort of disconnected from my role as an individual. And I also think that, um, you know, focusing so much on the individual um, distracts us from who is actually responsible for this problem. Um, And, the people who are mainly responsible are fossil fuel companies and lobbyists and people who take money from them. And, you know, those who've been not only kind of standing in the way of progress, but also making our chances of fighting it so much worse. And so I, you know, I don't think we should feel individually guilty necessarily for our consumption, but we should feel collectively responsible for fixing these systems and building a better
0: world. I do feel guilty sometimes. I mean, <laughs> it's hard a, not to feel guilty. As a white man, I have a lot of privilege in yeah. this world. I grew up in and I live in San Francisco, it's one of the wealthiest cities in the wealthiest country. So you telling me it's okay if I don't feel guilty. No,
3: I I mean, I think, you know, there's a, there's a healthy amount of guilt and shame. I just think that um I don't know that it's necessarily a powerful motivator in trying to fix anything, rather like maybe for some people it is, but I think for other people it makes them resentful of the messaging that told them to feel guilty when they didn't know that they were necessarily doing something bad. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've tried to address in in my book is, you know, one of the things I write about, for instance, is um, like denim production and producing jeans can use um, many, many thousands of gallons of water just to make one pair of jeans. But if I'm standing in the store trying to figure out which pair of jeans to buy, it's going to be impossible for me to figure out which of those genes was produced using the least amount of water. It should be the company's responsibility to have more control over their supply chain and see, um, you know, where the, where the waste is occurring and then try to reform those practices. And so I think, you know, in that way, I don't know that me feeling personally guilty about owning a pair of jeans fixes that problem
0: you come down pretty strongly on the side of producer responsibility versus consumer responsibility. Yeah. Most people think it's somewhere shared. Like right. I'm not uh, because if, if people think that they have no responsibility for what they buy, right. then they you know that's not right either. Right. So it's some shared responsibility. Yeah. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, I think I'm not saying that, you know, we we can all like fly with abandon and you know mm-hmm. eat as much red meat or wear as much cashmere as we want because you know once you learn this stuff, you have to Act on it because otherwise, what's the point of knowing it? You know, and if you limit the options of what's available, I think like a good example is with light bulbs. You know, like if you got rid of incandescence and you only had LEDs or compact fluorescents, then you wouldn't have the problem of. Having this wide variety of efficiency in light bulbs, so I think kind of limiting it at the market level or at the regulatory level is the most effective way to do it.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of pushback on on that front. Um, you write about going around to friends' houses and pu- plugging in powder <laughs> meters, etc. Um, you know what goes on in with your friends in terms of kind of judging and watching sort of the virtue police of how you know people watch you or you watch yeah. your friends about uh uh-uh, uh <laughs> uh there's that ice cream. I know you like ice cream, so yeah, right?
3: I do like ice cream. Um it's complicated. Uh <laughs> No, I think I've become maybe um a less, uh, popular dinner party guest because people will ask me like, <laughs> you know, how bad is this thing? And then I'll tell them and then they'll be mad and <laughs> they'll feel
0: guilty being around you. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. Or it's the next time I see them, like, well, I bought this at Zara, but don't tell Tatiana. Um, but you know, I think the response, the curi- the level of curiosity has, is, you know, from among my friends has made me, um, feel that this topic and this approach is really valuable. I think sometimes, you know, as I've been doing my book tour, I've gotten some questions like, um, well, what's the carbon footprint of your book? And what's the like your dress made of? And um, which, you know, it's not invalid. But I, I think that there has been a long tradition of um, those who, don't want to fight climate change or make progress in this area to try to point out the hypocrisy of those who are Mm -hmm. trying to deliver a message about it. And I think it's, you know, it's almost impossible to make an impact free choice um, in in our current system. And so I I think that that is really a distraction from the message as a whole, like what what Tatiana Schlossberg is doing. I don't, (laughs) you know, I don't really think that that is um, and that's not an important way to have this conversation.
0: And if car- being a carbon saint is required to be involved, then that I means. Yeah, we're all, we're all excluded. We're all yeah, carbon sinners. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Do you ever get fatigue uh, yes. of like. <laughs> Like I think if I, I sit on the couch, I'm worried about the fire retardants on the couch. I'm looking at the TV. You, you I learned in your book that the TV, if it, even if it's not used for a whole year, uses an average carbon, emits the average carbon. Same uh,
3: electricity consumption as per capita, or I think. Kenya the, and Haiti. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: so, and then I'm thinking about all the things around me that are bad. Just, and you know, my wife is like, okay, shut it off, turn it off. <laughs> I mean, do you ever get fatigued with sort of this climate awareness that can kind of just run away with you.
3: Yeah, I mean, part of kind of doing all of this research, I mean, makes it paralyzing to go to the grocery store. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, I do feel that I'm glad to have written the book because, and maybe you feel this way too. Now I don't have to be alone with this information.
0: <laughs> it's it's a burden and a responsibility yeah. to be climate conscious. Yeah, and it can be a little bit lonely.
3: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a, you know loneliness to it, and it does feel really overwhelming at times because even you know if you hear some. Some good news. Often there's, you know, the other side of the coin. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, it's it's really hard. And I think that's also one of the things I wanted to achieve in the book is um, to explain why this is such a big and complicated problem and difficult to solve. Because I think sometimes we hear things like, "Well, we know that you know solar and wind energy exists. Like, why can't we just get all of it from that?" But really, that requires developments in either battery technology or pumped hydro storage or in a transformation of the electricity grid and um, and those things are really difficult to achieve and so i think it's you know I, I think it's important to fully understand the problem because otherwise you probably won't be able to do what's necessary to solve it
0: right you write about the five stages of environmental grief <laughs> Uh, denial, anger. This was a new one. I, this was clearly, you know, riffing off Elizabeth Kubler yes, yeah. But I don't think trying to use less plastic—that's a new <laughs> one. Uh, denial, anger, depression, and determination. Tell me about you going through those phases, you know, as you were writing this book and learning about the gravity of the climate.
3: Yeah. Well, I think before I became a climate and environmental journalist, I didn't want to read about it that much because it did make me feel so anxious mm-hmm. and sort of upset and powerless, as I think it, you know, makes many people feel that way. So there's denial there. You learn more about it. That's anger. You Bargaining, get angry. Barking, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, depression. You know, it feels overwhelming, like we were just saying, trying to use less plastic always. Uh, <laughs> and then determination to be, I think, you know, for me, understanding this issue, you know, it doesn't make me feel less scared or less alarmed, but it makes me feel slightly less anxious because I do feel that I understand the problem and I understand, um, you know, I can evaluate for myself what politicians are proposing or what companies are saying and whether it's enough or whether it's greenwashing. And that makes me feel, I guess, a determination to keep doing that and to keep asking those questions and figuring out what's necessary. And so I hope that my book kind of helps people kind of go along
0: that journey as well
3: and come out the other end feeling motivated.
0: This is a Climate One conversation about inconspicuous consumption. Coming up, more with author Tatiana Schlossberg and fashion experts on ways to reduce the carbon impact of our clothing.
2: Think about timelessness in the piece. Think about wearing a garment or purchasing a garment that's going to be with you for the long haul. Love it. Really be a custodian, not a consumer. That's
0: up next when Climate
2: One continues.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about our hidden carbon footprints with Tatiana Schlossberg, author of Inconspicuous Consumption, the Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. One of the more surprising things Tatiana writes about is the relationship between the surge in home delivery and the demand for cardboard.
3: I wanted to write about e-commerce because I I wanted to see for myself if sort of all the hand-wringing about cardboard and Um, The cardboard pollution and people feeling guilty about things being delivered to their house. Mm -hmm. um, If that really kind of bore out in terms of whether that was, you know, worse for the environment or not. And it was really interesting to learn that, you know, over the last 10 years or so, I think uh, e-commerce Um, has quadrupled in size in terms of value but the cardboard production in the U.S. has stayed relatively the same but we're a lot worse at like it used to all go to the retailers and they are really good at recycling it and we're much worse at recycling it so that's kind of a problem and then you know we when we drive to the store we're much less efficient at planning our routes than the big logistics company like FedEx or UPS Mm -hmm. so that actually might be more efficient Um, but we kind of screw that all up when we do next day or two day delivery. And so I think part of the problem, sometimes the systems are the problem. Sometimes the, the problem is the way that we use the systems.
0: Well, after I read that, I ordered some shaving cream online <laughs> and just thought, oh, okay. So I, so right. rather than going down to the store. So um, you also write about uh, opposition to GMOs. So you kind of take a swipe at, you know, liberals who are opposed to GMOs. And that is, you say that that is kind of scientifically blissfully ignorant.
3: Well, I think people have kind of talked about it as if it's a health risk to us, which it's not. It's and, not. you know, GMOs here, we it may be something that's, you know, preventing pesticide, uh, you know, additional pesticide use or things like that. But in other parts of the world, it means, you know, vitamin A enriched rice that can prevent a lot of people from going blind. And um, so I think it's kind of a misunderstanding of what GMOs are and what value they actually can provide, and also misunderstanding what the risks are. The risks, again, are, you know, this power concentration and putting farmers out of business and maybe affecting, I mean, there's some biodiversity concerns, I think, but um, in terms of kind of the health risks to humans,
0: that's really not an issue. It's about power and monoculture and those things. It's not about the things that people like to scare about. Right.
3: I think that it's important to understand why we're opposed to certain things as opposed to just um, because, again, it's this sort of problem where you need to address the system as opposed to kind of thinking about it in terms of how it affects you as
0: an individual. So individual choices are insufficient. They're important for identity and for values. Uh, what are some of your top tips? You, for example, don't use a gaming console to stream videos. That's a bad one. What yeah. Are some other top tips.
3: Um, well, I think you know some of the things we've mentioned. You know, eating less um, kind of red meat and beef products and um, other meat. You know, flying less or not at all. Um, you know, I think. Buying secondhand is a really good option. Renting clothes is a good option and then sort of...
0: Renting clothes. Yeah. So
3: like rent the runway is a... Yeah. I don't know if the same things exist for men, but, um, you know, it's very difficult to... I mean, again, you can, you know, drive yourself crazy trying to make the most ethical choice. And that's why I think... You know, I stress in the book that the most important things to do are to vote and to, um, you know, not support companies that aren't at the very least transparent and also to talk about climate change because, you know, only about a third of Americans talk about climate change with their friends and family. But if they do talk about it, they're more likely to consider it a risk and to support policies to mitigate it. And so... I think that that is a really important thing that any, that anybody can do.
0: So you're saying persuasion should happen, right, to, to convert people into the, I hate this metaphor, but the choir, right, to get yeah. people on the bus or in, in the choir.
3: Well, I think, um, and, yeah, and, you know, these conversations don't have to exclusively be about climate science to be talking about climate change. And there are lots of different ways that these issues manifest themselves. And so I think t- what I... Another theme in the book or something I've tried to draw out is the issue of environmental justice. Um, You know, people, especially um, non-white communities, low-income communities and rural communities are disproportionately impacted by um, the direct effects of burning fossil fuels for energy. And, um, And there are lots of different people who are affected by that no matter what state they live in or, you know, if it's red or blue or whatever. So I think you don't have to necessarily even make the conversation about what greenhouse gas emissions are doing to the planet to show people that this a fossil fuel intensive economy is not good for most people and that, you know, kind of a lower carbon or a zero carbon future would actually be better for all of us for our health and kind of for the different opportunities for solutions.
0: It's all, though, within the frame of consumption. Yeah, right? It's all about, you know, and so some people would say consumption is the problem. Do you think that voluntary virtuous restraint is viable and achievable because mm-hmm. we all struggle with. It.
3: Right. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think we can shop our way out of the problem. Um, so that's one thing. And I don't know that telling everybody to buy less is effective, but that's why I think my focus is not on sort of telling people what to do or what to buy and, not, and what not to buy, but really understanding how these systems work and how the incentives are off, um, you know, in terms of both kind of their economic impact but for, for most of us, but also the wider impacts in terms of, um, you know, health and environmental costs. And, you know, we risk um, applying pressure in the wrong places if we don't understand how all the systems work and how they work together. And so that's that was more my goal rather than sort of trying to tell anybody what to do. And I was, um, you know, often pressed by my editor to like, can you provide more solutions?
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, but I, you know, I don't, I would, didn't want to be dishonest in that way because I, I do think that, you know, these problems are big and require systemic and structural change as opposed to sort of, um, you know, all of us just, kind of, or th- those of us who care really taking this on because they're generally speaking aren't enough of us to really make that matter.
0: So where do you end up? Oftentimes people talk about they're hopeful. I think sometimes people feign hope. They're not quite as hopeful as they say they are because they think they're supposed to say they're hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, So after writing this book, where are you on the hope spectrum?
3: (laughs) Um, Well, I do think that um, a lot of the problems are incredibly big and complicated and it's hard to see how they're um, fixed at the same time. I am incredibly inspired by other young people who are really, I mean, kids who went on the the climate strike and, um, you know, how much pressure the Sunrise Movement and others put on like the DNC, even though the DNC didn't have the climate debate uh, and, you know, things like the Green New Deal and that that is that we're kind of having a national conversation that includes that sort of radical action to me is um, that's a big change from even a few years ago. Um, and I am also personally um, inspired by um you know, our more slightly more distant history of, you know, the 1970s and the environmental movement there, because without that action on, you know, the first Earth Day and also the organizing around the 1970 midterm elections, you know, if they hadn't defeated kind of seven of these 12 members of Congress with the worst environmental voting records, we probably wouldn't have the expansion of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act and so many of these other regulations that really have changed what it's like to live in America. And so I think that's an incredibly, to me, powerful and poignant example of what is possible.
0: Tatiana Schlossberg is author of Inconspicuous Consumption, the environmental impact you don't know you have. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Another place where our carbon footprint is often hidden in plain sight is the clothes we put on every day
4: yoga pants, bicycling shorts, you know, denim jeans. Um, what does that material look like? You know, Where is it coming from? What's the environmental impact of it?
0: Amina Razvi is executive director of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, a business alliance that measures environmental, social, and labor impacts across the clothing, footwear, and textile industries. She joined me to talk about the energy embedded in our clothing, along with Rebecca Burgess, founder and director of Fibershed, a nonprofit that helps develop regional and regenerative fiber systems for clothing producers. Rebecca explains how our clothing choices can be as significant as our food choices.
2: We like to wake people up to the idea that the value system that they place when putting food in their refrigerator or stocking the shelves in their kitchen is a similar value proposition as what you would fill your wardrobe with. You know, where was this fiber coming from that... Um, populated these sweaters and pants and socks and underwear? Where did it come from? And, you know, did it come from near my home? Did it come through a complex supply chain? If I eat local, can I wear local? If I eat organic, am I wearing organic? If I'm interested in climate-smart agriculture, how am I wearing those values in the fibers that I'm wearing each day? And so right now, the hidden costs... They say by, and this is an Ellen MacArthur Foundation stat, that if we continue business as usual with our textile um, production consumption patterns, that the industry will basically equate to about 26% of the overall carbon budget that humanity has to keep the planet under two degrees C. So. You know, clothing. I mean, almost a third of a global emissions budget by 2050 under business as usual scenario is significant. So we have a lot to to change, um, which are not only fiber choices but behaviors in how we wear our clothing.
0: That's a bigger proportion that I think I uh, realize. Amena Razvi, tell us about: Do the companies recognize uh, how big a problem they are in terms of uh, in the global carbon budget and and what's being done about it? Thank
4: <laughs> you. Um, I do think that companies are increasingly becoming much more aware, not just of how complex the problem is, but of the role that they play. And I think that's because they're hearing about it at multiple levels. They're hearing about it from consumers who I think are, you know, their core customers and are asking more questions about the um, the things that they purchase from these companies. They're hearing about it from global and local stakeholders who I think are, are pressing companies to... Um, to do more about these issues. And so increasingly, I think it's becoming um, a much more, I think, strategic conversation at higher levels within multiple organizations than it has been in the past. And I think that's that's great to see, but I, I do think there's a lot more to be done.
0: Is that conversation driven by by risk and fear? I know some people are concerned about uh, the supply of cotton, right? Cotton, is there's a lot of water. And I've heard uh, Rick Ridgway, the sustainability lead at Patagonia say, Organic cotton is terrible because organic doesn't address water use. So is this conversation driven by opportunity or desire to be a leader, a brand leader in, in sustainability?
4: I think it's actually all of the above, right? If you are a business and you want to remain in business, I think it's imperative that you're looking at not only all of the risks, but the opportunities as well that um, sustainability can present. And I think sustainability is increasingly becoming seen as a competitive advantage. So those companies who want to demonstrate leadership, those companies who want to, um, I think further engage with their consumers and actually rethink how they do business are, are going to be seen differently. Um, and I think that they know that. And, and so a lot of them are moving in that direction.
0: So Rebecca Burgess, you know, tell us how much oil is in my closet? If I look at, uh, you don't know what, <laughs> you've never seen my closet, but a typical guy got jeans and shirts and some exercise clothes. Um, is there more oil in my closet than I realize?
2: For most human beings, FAO UN stat is around 70% by weight of our wardrobes is actually fossil carbon derived lithosphere based carbon. So yeah, nylon, polyester, acrylic. And you know when I look at typical life cycle assessments on on those kinds of garments, we're not taking into account um, some of the emissions that are land-based around those extraction processes. Um, I also do not see in the use phase those fossil carbon derived fibers being incorporated in their understanding of how we're caring for them because it's in the use phase where we see um, currently um, in the San Francisco, the San Francisco estuary um, initiative, I think it was five gyres and San Francisco estuary group just did a whole analysis of the San Francisco Bay on microplastics. And 74% of the material they caught in their microplastics bucket was material from fibers.
0: So when we wash our, uh, anyone washes their yoga pants or their bicycling shorts, there are fibers that go from their washing machine into the, their nearby waterway. That's right. Is yes. that what you're
2: saying? They said, and 53% of that 74% was um, plastic fiber. And the plastic fibers are, what they're concerned about is the kind of trophic cascade. So as zooplankton absorb that, and then they're eaten, how that absorbs through the food chain is what most scientists are, are most concerned about from a health systems, looking at human health for the food chain that we're a part of as we eat part of the marine food web for our diets, but also within the marine food web, just without the human consumer, just how is that affecting cetaceans and other life forms as it accumulates up the food web. So yes, it's our yoga pants. Um, If they're acrylic or if they're nylon or polyester, that is a problem.
0: Which most yoga pants are. Um, Amin Razvi. athleisure is one of the fastest growing segments. Uh, Athleta, Lululemon, they're oil, these products are oil-based. Yoga pants and cycling shorts yeah. are bad for the environment. What's the alternative? Can the garment industry move away from fossil fuels the way that the car industry is moving away from gasoline to electric?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think in in order to be able to make that move, you kind of have to know where you're starting, right? And that's a, it's the fundamental basis of the SAC and the work that we're doing the around the Higgins, right? Um, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition um, was really founded to help bring that data um, in a global standardized way to the companies who are using it. So if you are making yoga pants, bicycling shorts, you know denim jeans, um, what does that material look like? You know where is it coming from? What's the environmental impact of it? Um, and if you know that, then you actually have a really good baseline. You have a, an understanding of what the impacts are currently. And what do you really need to do to shift away from those types of materials or those types of fibers towards one, ones that are um, potentially more environmentally friendly or sustainable?
0: So you're helping companies understand their impact and, and get a baseline. Uh, in a lot of sectors, we're seeing cities, companies pledge zero net emissions, going for zero. Who yeah. are, the, where are the bold leaders in apparel and textiles saying we want to be out there and go, go to, you know, who's the big, hairy, audacious goal?
4: Um, I, you know, for us, I think many of our members are setting really big audacious goals. And that that's part of um, what I think that the Sustainable Apparel Coalition brings to the overall industry is that you have leaders, you have folks like Levi's setting goals around water, you have Patagonia talking about um, how they reduce their emissions, you know, um, and others. But I think it's really important for everyone to push each other to set really ambitious goals and to figure out how they do that collectively, because at the end of the day, no single company is actually going to be able to solve this problem.
0: You're listening to a conversation about the energy hidden in our clothing. This is Climate One. Coming up, more with Rebecca Burgess and Amina Razvi and putting pressure on tech companies to clean up the power they run on.
5: What we need to see more of is for companies to be using their influence using their ability to influence government and policymakers to change the rules and change what's powering the grid because we're running out of time.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about your wardrobe with Amina Razvi, Executive Director of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition and Rebecca Burgess, Founder and Director of Fibershed. She tells us about the impact of fast fashion, inexpensive clothing produced rapidly by mass market retailers in response to the latest fads.
2: Well, since 2001, 2002, around the time that H&M came into uh, formation, we started to see a spike in the use of polyester as a blending agent to bring the price down of fast fashion items of clothing. And when we started to see polyester blended into cottons and blended into other natural fibers... We created a system whereby it has become price prohibitive to separate those fibers back out. There's plenty of R&D and technologists trying to find ways to take the natural fiber out of a piece of clothing and recycle that and take the polyester out and separate it and recycle that. And there's some people actually blending it all and making new yarns. But overall, we've created this huge spike of garments that are hard to recycle. Less than 1% are actually going back into the system as new clothing right now. And part of that is because of all these cheapening options to blend plastic, which is subsidized through many things all the way back to war, really. So my concern really is that fast fashion has perpetuated clothing that's hard to recycle and that it has been promoting through its marketing, um, not just seasonal purchases, but every two weeks, every three weeks, there's this idea that the next best and greatest thing um, will be available to you. And... um, I really like uh, fashion researcher Kate Fletcher out of London who says, you know, fashion is like any organism. It has filled out completely how much it can grow in the ecosystem in which, which you could call Earth's biome. It's basically reached a max capacity of what it can do. And so right now, the role is to really hit our climate goals. She would say we have to reduce volume and consumption by half. And so what we need to look at is a price per wear model. You know, how long am I going to keep this item? How long can I keep this item? How durable is it? How many mending attempts can I put into it? How much can I refurbish it? And could I get this $300 climate beneficial wool coat to cost me 30 cents per wear if I keep it to the end of its full life, which might be beyond my lifetime? So this idea of inheriting clothing, um, keeping clothing in play intergenerationally, modifying clothing, over dyeing it, hemming it. Visible mending could become a trend, um, which it is. Sashiko mending is starting to come back beautifully. I do think we have a, a role to play in paying the true cost, and then analyzing cost per wear as a as an overall strategy to um, keep our budgets still within um, reality. But we have to keep the clothing longer to make this all work.
0: I'm gonna, I'd like to get you on cost too, because cost is such a big driver. Uh, you know luxury brands, people can afford to pay some kind of premium for uh, pasture-raised wool, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even know the labels to use here. I know the labels to use in the grocery store, you know, Forest Stewardship yeah. Council, Marine Stewardship Council. I don't know the labels to use here. But how about the cost? Are they willing to absorb, perhaps, some some of the costs of doing this, of internalizing uh, the carbon costs, as Rebecca just said?
4: It's one of those things where every company is looking at it and tackling it slightly differently, you know, and I think that for some of these companies, it's it's also about innovation, right? It's not just purely uh, what is this going to cost, but how can we innovate to actually get to the ultimate goal of having more sustainable clothing? So how can we look at different materials or where we're getting them from or how we're sourcing them, um, not just the materials, but uh, where something is actually produced uh, physically, that location, um, you know, what do transportation, logistics, and, and everything look like across the supply chain um, to figure out how a company can really innovate Um, how they can recognize those costs, but ultimately also deliver and make better product.
0: But is local sourcing of uh, fibers for clothes? We all hear about local food and food miles. Uh, I haven't heard about local clothes as much. Are companies really looking about local sourcing because fossil fuel is cheap? Shipping from China, China labor is cheap in China. In fact, most of the pressure on uh, the garment industry has been over labor practices over the recent decades. Um, so, are the, is is local sourcing really a thing? I mean, it's it's, it's
4: what uh, it's what Rebecca does, and I, one of our uh, member companies, North Base, has been. Working working with fiber shed, And so I definitely think there are companies who who are looking at that, but I think it's actually about multiple options, right? You have to both, you have to do things both locally, uh, regionally, as well as think about globally, because that is the system that exists and look at what the potential is to change things at multiple levels, because that change at multiple levels is really what's going to be effective in terms of getting um, to the reductions we ultimately need. And so I, I don't think it's a either or, it's a yes and, it's all of those.
0: Rebecca Burgess, top tips for people who want to be climate conscious, uh, clothing consumers, what should a person do?
2: Consider buying something if you are needing something new. If you're at that point of your wardrobe needing, you need more more warmth, you need more options because you've put tattered clothes to bed. Um, Think about timelessness in the piece. Think about wearing a garment or purchasing a garment that's going to be with you for the long haul. Love it. Really be a custodian, not a consumer. And so think about custodianship um, as a change in mindset. That's number one. Number two, simply how you care for your clothes, um, purchasing natural fibers that aren't going to create these um, marine and terrestrial ecosystem problems with shedding Um, compounds that we don't quite understand their impacts um, to even our hormone balance. So natural fiber is key. And then I would say how you wash your clothing. We can save 1,600 pounds of CO2E per year just by washing on cold and line drying. And then the last thing would be mending when it gets tattered. How can I keep this piece in play? Who are my partners in keeping this clothing alive and well? Um, Is it my local dry cleaner who can help me fix this if I can't fix it myself? Um, You know, where's the haberdashery (laughs) that allows me to fix and mend? I think those are the main things um, that I would say are important. And then when you do buy also, if you can find an organic item of clothing, if you can find something local, those are very, very key. They help stimulate Um, Some of these pieces that we're trying to put in play around carbon drawdown in ag lands, which is so critical to the climate conversation. And so if you can find clothing that's coming from a landscape that has measurable drawdown occurring, um, like the North Face's Climate Beneficial Wool Program, that's measurable change to atmospheric tonnage moving down. They can measure that. And that's a really important thing to look for if you can find it.
0: Rebecca Burgess, founder and director of Fibershed, along with Amina Razvi, executive director of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. This is Climate One. Although media and tech companies may seem on the surface like sleek, low-carbon operations, it takes a lot to power the clouds of the digital economy.
1: And the cloud is just a word. It's not actually in the sky, as we know. It's actually in computers, in buildings. And those computers use a lot of power and generate a lot of heat.
0: That's Miranda Ballantyne, CEO of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, a coalition of companies across the United States. I spoke with her along with Gary Cook, senior corporate campaigner with Greenpeace, about which companies are getting clean and which ones aren't.
5: I'd say broadly you've seen a lot of leadership from tech companies in driving uh, their growth or attaching their growth to renewable energy. And so we've seen, I think, probably in the tech sector alone, probably over 10 gigawatts of renewable energy deployed, attached to uh, actions by companies like Google, Microsoft, and Apple, and Facebook. Now, that being said, I think These companies have led a transition from the sort of 1.0 approach providing renewable energy credits that had very little impact on the marketplace to really doing PPAs, power purchase agreements, and other forms of transactions that's driving renewables onto the grid. What we really need to see is a transition from that to a 3.0 approach where we're really looking at how are we getting dirty energy off the grid, phasing out fossil fuels, uh, and getting to a a true 24-7 renewable supply That is what is needed to address climate change and transition us to a a renewable energy future.
0: Gary, you mentioned the leaders. There's some laggards in your most recent report uh, with Click Clean uh, 2017. Amazon was rated a C. Netflix and HBO Go and Spotify got a D. And Twitter got an F. Have they moved since then? And, And why are those companies lagging so much?
5: You've seen some movement, uh, some good, some bad across that spectrum. I think actually Spotify uh, has done much better since then. They've actually been much more transparent about their footprint. They've transitioned their operations to parts of, I believe it's mostly Google's cloud network that has a much higher percentage renewable energy powering that part of their, their cloud platform. Uh, Amazon, unfortunately, has gone, I'd say, down overall. I mean, they've seen some recent movement this year, which hopefully is a sign of, renewed leadership. But from 2017, when that report was put out, kind of went silent for quite some time, had not bought renewable energy, but yet was in a period during of rapid growth. And that's really the challenge I think we're seeing is that companies need to are growing so quickly. And unless they're really focused on solving for the renewable energy supply in a very aggressive way, then they start slipping and falling behind on, on matching their growth with renewable energy.
0: Miranda Valentin, your response?
1: Uh, so the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance has a, has a slightly different place in this ecosystem. Um, our members are not just the tech and entertainment companies. And interestingly, if you go back to 2013, when REBA was first uh, created as an idea, one of the big problems that these large organizations identified was a transition in our economy towards a digitized economy. So it's not just the Googles and Facebooks and Amazons of the world, but a whole range of other kinds of companies. So think about General Motors, Johnson & Johnson, Walmart, Target. All of these organizations saw back in 2013 that their businesses were becoming digitized and they were using Cloud computing to manage their businesses and saw a tidal wave coming in front of us of energy demand. To, to provide power to those data centers. Uh, so I would say that this is not just a tech challenge. It's a challenge for every large organization. It's a challenge for cities, and it's a challenge for individuals. All of us are consumers of data. And the cloud is, is just a word. It's not actually in the sky, as we know. It's actually in computers, in buildings. And those computers use a lot of power and generate a lot of heat. Um, And so it is a challenge that that all major corporations. Are, are working to tackle together. I would say,
0: and is this happening across the political divide? We live in such a, a politically divided country, uh, Miranda Ballantyne, You know, is this you know, move toward green energy happening in red states?
1: Absolutely, no question about it. Um, so the move towards green energy, yes, is driven by a desire and need to solve the climate crisis. Uh, you know, I will tell you that is the number one driver for these large organizations that are directly procuring renewable energy, wind, solar. It's Um, not just cheaper energy? Absolutely not. Uh, I spent a little bit of time um, as Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, and I spent a lot of time uh, during that period of my life thinking about energy security and energy resilience. And one of the benefits of renewable energy in particular is it has no supply chain. So uh, a a determined adversary, whether it's Mother Nature with a hurricane or, uh, or an enemy of the country, can take out all kinds of of other kinds of energy, but they can't make the sun stop shining and they can't make the wind stop blowing. Uh, So a lot of big organizations, whether it's cities, data centers, retail stores, are also seeing renewable energy not only as a clean, low-cost form of energy, but also a form of energy that can give them reliability and resilience in the face of these increased storms that we're facing.
0: Gary Cook, that brings to mind the recent uh, wildfires in California, which have uh, you know, 2 million people in Northern California without power for some time. There's a concern that some of the large companies will start to island themselves off from a grid so that they can, because the grid is now unstable in, in California in a way that it never has been. So that's concerning for business continuity purposes. Are you concerned that, that some of these companies will, will island themselves off uh, and they might be in a green island and that might have some consequences for the rest of the system?
5: I, I think you see companies taking action to you know, take control of their supply chain. I think look, when you're looking at data centers, it's such a large power draw that they're creating when they're building data centers that they can certainly do things that are local, connected to their data center. But they're certainly going to be grid dependent overall. And so I, I think it's what you see and what we need to see more of is sort of more collective responsibility for what is power, what is powering the grid and for companies to be using their influence, using their ability to influence government and policymakers to change the rules and change what's powering the grid because we're running out of time. You see in California, you saw in Sydney this past week, you see climate change impacts every time you turn around. We need to move much faster. A key part of that is working together to change the system that is governing how our electricity is generated. Unfortunately, we see uh, the tech sector growth and often being very concentrated in places where the utilities aren't interested in that transition. You look at Virginia, uh, where you have the largest concentrations of data centers in the world, and you look at Dominion Energy, who's the dominant utility, and they are not transitioning in 10 years' time where we need to be basically have phased out coal dramatically Uh, reduced our natural gas use for powering that grid, they're only going to be 10% renewable. And you have more and more data centers going there every single month, every single year. Uh, That's the kind of growth that we don't need is going to take us in the wrong direction. So, companies have been uh, aggressive in many places and driving renewables, but in many places their growth is aggressive in the places where the transition is not happening and is taking us in the wrong direction.
0: Miranda Valentine. Industry associations, trade associations are often, they, you know, very cautious because they have a broad membership to to be careful of. Uh, don't want to often and alienate some potential collaborator of a member or customer of a member. Uh, is Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance willing to really pressure coal and take on coal and get coal off the grid in the way that Gary just mentioned?
1: So something that's completely unique about REBA, as far as I can tell, uh, we are not an industry association based on uh, any sector of the economy. We're not based on any particular industry. Our members range across not only every sector of the business community, but also we have university members. We've got city members. We are a community of organizations that have come together around a mission not around a sector and how to improve that sector. Um, so so it's you're really not afraid to make enemies.
0: Is that what you're saying? You're not afraid to ruffle some feathers. <laughs>
1: um, some, some feathers are already demonstrably ruffled. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think we'll have to. Now, is every company ready to you know, make their individual brand heard on particular policy measures? No, they're not. Um, you know, Our organization has to allow the leaders to have their brands be seen while also allowing those that are newer in the journey and maybe just starting to learn how to do renewable energy projects um, not be engaged in public policy. Unlike most trade associations, public policy and regulatory intervention is only a small piece of what we do. We do an enormous amount of education and uh, growing the market by just bringing more buyers uh, into the skill set that they can do deals.
0: I want to ask about peer pressure, Gary Cook. You know, how important is peer pressure among these companies to kind of be on the right side and even down to the individual or CEO level to, to get in here and be on the right side?
5: Uh, particularly in the tech sector, these companies are, are very competitive. I think it's, it's obvious on a number of levels. They're all very keen to, as a consumer, get you into their ecosystem, keep you there, have you you know continue relying on their services. They're very competitive for talent. And I think you see existing employees, future employees looking at these companies and like, where am I going to attach my talents to? And I think the concerns around leadership on climate change from a Uh, recruitment and retention perspective are huge. And so I think we can expect to see more pressure from employees and more demanding more from these companies that these companies will have to keep up with the race. Otherwise, they'll run risking not only losing their customers, but losing a lot of their talent.
1: And I would say there's another element of it's not so much peer pressure as peer support. So for the next generation, not the the Fortune 100s and the Global 500s, but the next generation of companies, they're actually looking for peer support and collaboration and the cover that, well, Google has done it, Facebook has done it, Walmart has done it. If those companies can do it, we can do it. So that kind of peer-to-peer, what are you doing? What are you doing? Can we all make a commitment to do something really makes a difference in that? next group, what I call the fast followers, not necessarily the leaders.
0: Miranda Ballantyne, CEO of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, along with Gary Cook, senior corporate campaigner with Greenpeace, talking about the very big and often invisible environmental impact of the energy choices made by tech companies and other businesses. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.